Good morning. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor here. We're thankful that you have chosen to worship with us. Happy Mother's Day to our moms. Um, I'm thankful for my wife and the way that she cares and gives to our family and to our kids. I'm thankful to my mother, who will, I think will, will be listening to this, so I have to mention my own mother for the for the obstacles that she's overcome and the way that she is cared and given and loved. Um, it is such a blessing. To my mother-in-law who's here, I'm so thankful for you, for your grace, kindness, and hospitality. Um, for all the moms, like we would be lost without your care and for the ways that you give and give and give. So we're thankful, and I do recognize that, like Ray mentioned, today can be a hard day. Perhaps you wanted to be a mother, but that wasn't God's plan. And to you, we say, we care, we love, we're thankful for you. And we pray for you, that God would encourage you and continue to walk with Jesus through the ups and through the downs. Let's pray as we open up God's word. Father, again, we're thankful for moms for the example, for the picture that they are of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful and we celebrate them today and for the ways that they serve and care and do so much for families, for this church. And we pray that today they would be encouraged, that they'd be validated And God, we do pray for those that whatever situation they're in, maybe today is a tough day. Memories or the realization that things haven't happened the way that they wanted them to be. God, we pray for them that you would encourage and comfort them, help them, be close to them. God, we are so thankful for all the women here, for the way that they care for so many people and do so much. And so, God, now as we open up your word, we pray that you would teach us. We want to know you. We want to know more of you and your heart. We want to be great like you are great. So, God, we pray that through reading through David's life story, that today we would see a picture of your greatness in his life. And, God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do a work in our life. That this isn't just a time that we sit and we take in and we listen, but this is a time where you come and you work. You put people in our minds and our hearts that we could apply this message to. So God, we ask God that no matter where we are, how we're doing, what our situation is, God, that today you would speak to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We've started a new series on greatness, trying to get to the place where we can say, this is what it truly means to be great. And here's the the truth is, is that our culture, our community, our world tells us something different than what greatness actually is. And so what we're trying to do with this series is say, what does God tell us is great? Like, how does God define greatness? Because that's what I want to go after. 
As I was thinking about the different ways that we can go after greatness, I came across a story from Mount Everest. 23 years ago yesterday, Mount Everest experienced one of the most tragic days in the mountain's history. Eight climbers, as they attempted to reach the summit 29,000 feet above sea level, they finally reached the summit but they did not account for what the descent would be like. And as they came off the summit, the the peak of all the work and all the effort, they come off the summit, and because of weather and equipment and all sorts of factors, eight people lost their life that day. As I was reading about Mount Everest, it was amazing to me. 29,000 feet That's like space. That's like you are in aircraft. And I was reading about all the work that has to go to get to 29,000 feet. That at 19,000 feet, there is hardly any oxygen in the air. And that your heart can't even process the little bit of oxygen in the air and what this does to your body. And reading about what these climbers have to do to not just get to 19,000 feet, but get 10,000 feet higher with the, the weight of the equipment that helps them to breathe. And reading about the likelihood of heart failure and hypothermia and all the challenges that go into climbing this mountain. I'm not sure if you've read the book or seen the movie. Into Thin Air was the story that was written about this accident 23 years ago. John Krakauer was on this um, on this climb with his climbers, and he was brought there from a magazine to document what they were doing. And so as he documented, he wrote this book about what he experienced as he climbed this peak. Here was a little bit about what he said. One of the, the, the characters or the people that he was with that he focused on was a, was a young lady named Yasuko Namba. Yasuko Namba was this expert mountain climber that had already reached the peak of most of the world's tallest mountains. She was an avid climber. And as he watched her, watched her pursuit of this mountain, he decided to write this about her. He says this, Yosuko was totally focused on the top. It was almost as if she was in a trance. She pushed extremely hard, jostling her way past everyone to the front of the line. She wanted to get to the top of Everest. And later that day, she made it. She accomplished her goal. She was the oldest person ever to make it to the highest point in the world. But later that afternoon, however, Yasuka and a number of other climbers were caught in a blizzard. And as icy winds blew, Yasuko succumbed to the exhaustion of her climb and froze to death. Yasuko died, agonizing close in time to a location where she had gained her greatest prize. Listen to what he says about her pursuit for this summit. He says, Yasuko's fatal flaw was that she adopted the wrong goal. Her goal had been to get to the top of the mountain. What she wanted the most was to stand at the top of the world, and all of Japan cheered her when she did. But this was the wrong goal. And a frequent and sometimes fatal mistake that climbers make, the goal of climbing should never be to get to the top of the summit. 
Successful climbers know that the goal is not to get to the top, it's to get back down to the bottom. And the tragedy is that Yasuko accomplished her goal against incredible odds. She made it to the top of the mountain, but as she poured out her energy to get to the top, she did not save enough strength to make it back down. She failed because she adopted the wrong goal. For us, this is what we're asking. What is our summit? Like, what are we going after in life? Like, what is greatness? And I don't want us to say at the end of it all that we pursued the wrong thing. That what our culture tells us is the summit is not the actual summit. And so what we're trying to do is to step back and say, what does God tell us about greatness? A life that is great. And as we look at David, okay, we're going to be the part of David's story where he is finally king. And he gets to, to be king, and it's, I can imagine David finally being king and looking out on the kingdom and saying, it is finally time. I was amazed at how long it took after David was anointed that Ray talked about last week, the anointing to David and Goliath to where we are now in 2 Samuel 5, how long it took from the anointing for David to be actually the king. Okay, 15 to 20 years. 15 to 20 years after Samuel shows up, David is forgotten. He is anointed with oil. He pours oil on David's head. Says, you are the next king. That it took another 15 to 20 years. And to think about David finally becoming king and thinking, what am I going to do now? Like, what am I going to focus on? It has been a long 20 years. Like, you may think, like, I would think you've been anointed to be king of God's chosen people. Life's going to be pretty good. Like, I'm on an upward path of, of a good life. But David's life, as you know, gets significantly worse after his anointing. The nights that he spent in caves the people that were out to kill him, the depth that he had to go. And you've just got to picture David sitting on the throne thinking, I'm finally king. What am I going to pursue? Maybe I'll pursue revenge. The knights, the people that came after to kill me. It was it was common, it was acceptable in this culture that when a new king came on board, that they would kill the family of the previous king. Like this was accepted practice. It's like David could have focused on all the people that came after him from Saul. Maybe David was thinking, I could focus on comfort, on wealth, on the people on relationships, on being famous, all these things. You've just, he's waited 20 years to do this. But that's not David. And that's what makes David great. Doesn't focus on revenge. He doesn't focus on money. He doesn't focus on anything except for caring for the people. Second Samuel 5 gives us just a picture of who, the kind of guy that David was. It says, in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, 
You shall be the shepherd of my people. David, you're not the king. You're not kingly. You are a shepherd. David is going to focus on care and compassion. Even though he has all the resources, all the power, every right to do whatever he wants to do. But David continues to function as a shepherd. And as we think about how David is shepherding, there's one story in particular that I want to focus on this morning because it's a beautiful story and I think it shows us truly what makes David a great person. And it's the story of Mephibosheth. Say that five times. 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David is just sitting around. What am I going to do today? I want to show kindness to someone for Jonathan's sake. Now, if you remember Jonathan, David and Jonathan, David made a promise to Jonathan that he did not have to make. David promised Jonathan before Jonathan died that he would show steadfast love to his family because there is no doubt Jonathan knew the custom of the culture, that it was in the right of the king to kill the, all the family of the king that went before And so David promises to Jonathan, I will show steadfast love to your family. And here we have David just seeking for an opportunity to live up to this promise. This word kindness is the same word for grace. I want to care for someone despite what they've done, despite what their their family has done. It's undeserved, it's unearned, it's unrepayable, it makes no sense. Our culture says that you don't do this, but I want to show loving kindness and grace to someone in this family. The opportunity doesn't find David, David finds it. He goes after it. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. So I want to just pause for a moment, and I want us to just reflect on the emotional health of Mephibosheth. Okay, how 
would Mephibosheth had been feeling this morning? Like, what would he have been thinking? couple of things that we know about Mephibosheth. Okay, we know that his father and his grandfather had died. Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle when he was five years old. We know that his grandfather, Saul, was a hated person. So I want you to just think about, as a five-year-old, what this would do for you, how this would impact you, that in one battle, both your dad and your granddad pass away. In my last ministry, there was a, a young lady that I got to know who lost her dad at five years old in a surfing accident. And the confusion, the void, the memories, the, the, the way that she processed this was extremely challenging. Because at five, you remember, but you're confused. And as a high schooler, as she's continuing to process what this meant for her, it was challenging. Not only for Mephibosheth has he lost his, the men that were in his life. Okay, we know that Mephibosheth was disabled. He was in an accident as a child. Second Samuel 4 tells us about what happened. I'll just read it here. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. Just process what this would be like. A five-year-old who at the, the announcement of his father and grandfather, it is time to run because they know what the culture says it's time to do. And in running, the nurse drops him. And now he's living with the inability to walk. Both feet so severely damaged that he cannot move. How many of you have or have had a five-year-old boy ever? How many of you have five-year-old boys yeah, how would that go? Five-year-old boy, unable to move, to walk. My two sons, Truman and Jack, they thrive on being outside. They thrive on running and causing havoc, like getting out and doing crazy things, climbing things, jumping things, kicking things, running around. And last summer, Jack and Truman had a little bit of an accident. They bumped into each other. Jack was in a soft cast for two weeks. He could still get around, but it was a little bit harder. And in those two weeks, it was painful. What he wants to do, he can't do. He could still move, but he could not run with his brother. This was Mephibosheth's life. His entire life was not being able to do what he wants to do. On top of the fact that he has lost his dad and his granddad. Now, he is stuck. It's overwhelming to think about. Like It's overwhelming to think about what that situation would be like today for a five-year-old. It's so sad to think about. 
But this was the lot in life that God had for Mephibosheth. Not only was he unable to walk, Mephibosheth was in hiding. The text that we just read said that he was living in low Debar, a place translated in the English, the land of nothing. Sounds like a great place to live. The land of nothing. This is where Mephibosheth decides to live because he is in hiding because he has nothing. And so he's living in this place with nothing in fear until one day his door, he gets a knock on his door. And to see, to open that door and to see the servant of the king, he had to be worried at this point. He had to be concerned about what this meant for his life and for them to take him to the king. Just imagine the scene when he is brought out in front of the king. I mean, did he, how did he get in front of the king? The picture that's in my mind, and it's not in the text, but the picture in my mind is seeing Mephibosheth crawl out using his arms in front of David. And the picture that this leaves us, it is incredible. And then we get his response. David's response is Mephibosheth is brought in front of him. Verse 7 tells us what David says. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and all to his house, I've given, given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So, young son who's, so his young son, whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And oh, by the way, he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth had nothing. He deserved nothing. He could do nothing for David. He could repay nothing for David. Yet David gave him everything. Everything. David gave him inheritance. He gave him a legacy. He gave him his legacy back. That his grandfather wasn't all bad. And that he could now take over the land that his father and grandfathers and great-grandfathers had. He gave his family dignity. He gave them an opportunity to work and to care for the land that they could provide for themselves. But most important of all, David gives this man a new identity. Sit at my table. Sit at my table. This is where my sons should sit. You will sit and you will be like my son. What a picture of kindness and grace. 
that this same kindness and grace is shown to us through Jesus Christ by God. A passage in Titus that I think shows the same picture of how God in Jesus Christ in this kindness says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who is in the driver's seat in this passage in Titus? Who is the one that is doing the action? It is not us. It is God through Jesus who pursues us. He does everything. He appears. He finds us. He saves us. He washes us. He makes us heirs. It's not us doing anything. Just like with Mephibosheth, he does nothing in this passage. He shows up and the loving kindness and grace of David is poured over him. And it is the same way with us and God. That we are undeserving. We can't repay him. We can't earn it. But that his loving kindness and grace comes to us through Jesus Christ. I'm not sure what makes you feel unworthy before God. Like, I'm not sure when you think about your life and your past and who you are today, what it is that causes you to say, I am unworthy. For Mephibosheth, you just have to think it was his his accident with his feet. That he would look down as David is pronouncing these blessings over him, and he looked down and he'd see his feet. Like these feet, this represents what my granddad did to David. This represents what I can do and what I cannot do. But what we see in Titus is that it is not about what we bring to the table. It's not about what we can do. It is about what God has done. And so for whatever it is that makes you to think inside, I'm not worthy, Like, look at what I've done. Look at the things I've done to people. Look at how I view myself. Look at my depression or my sadness. Look at my challenges. Look at my person. Look at who I am. Whatever it is that causes you to feel you are unworthy, just know that God accepts you anyways. Anyways. Just like David accepted Mephibosheth. That God is basically saying, I come to you, I put on my shoulders the requirement to be part of my family, and that I accept you. You are mine, crutches and all, liabilities and all, whatever you bring to the table, I accept you. You are mine. What a picture of the gospel. But to kind of take it down to the next level, as we think about being great, Okay, being great like David, really there's just one point. To be great like David means we be kind like David. Kindness is greatness. If you want a summit for you to go after and climb up and to pursue, kindness is a worthwhile summit. David, just sitting there, 
first day as king, what am I going to do today? Decides to go after showing kindness. For us, what a challenge to say, I want to show kindness. Paul tells us in Colossians, he says, clothe yourselves with kindness. Like when you get ready for the morning and you put on your belt, your shoes and your socks and your shirt, another element that you should put on every single morning is the element of kindness. And as you live your life, be waiting and thinking and looking for opportunities to show kindness. Because when we show kindness, when we show kindness, we are showing God's love to the world. There's a story, a a video that I want to show real quick, and then we'll wrap up. Maybe. I'll keep talking. When you find it, just push play. When we are kind, we show God's love. When we are kind, we are showcasing God's love for us. And so that's why we're kind, because we are giving whoever it is a picture of how much God loves us. One pastor says, kindness is the delivery system of God's love to your fellow man. We teach people what God's love for them is like when we show kindness. Because, And here's the reality. Here's the situation that we live in. There are people who need kindness. People who need care and grace and love. People who are sad. Students, there are students that you walk the halls with and you eat lunches with that are sad. That would, their life would be changed if we showed them kindness. There are people, students, who sit alone at lunch. There are students who are discouraged and feel lonely and don't have friends. Kindness saying, I want to care for you. I want to be nice to you. I want to do something for you. That is, it is life, it is life changing. Life changing. Employers, employees, people that work for you, that are are real people who have struggles and things that make them sad and things that they're experiencing that are hard. An opportunity to, to go the extra mile and show kindness. We live in a world that is lonely, that is discouraged, that is sad. And when we show kindness, we are showing God's love to them. And one of the best ways we can show kindness, one of the best ways is through relationship. Relationship. Like not just saying hi and how are you and what are you doing. Like if we really want to care for someone, you know what we can do? Invite them into our life. Like, let's have coffee. Let's, let, I'd love to have you over for dinner. Let's go hang out with me and my friends. One of the best ways that we can show kindness is through relationship. I remember learning this in high school. A kid that, that wasn't well-liked, and, and my best friend said, we will show him kindness. I said, great, let's invite him to church. He said, no, like, he is now our new best friend. I'm like, What? So we started inviting him everywhere with us, everywhere. And I remember he finally, he would come with us. And though he was not well-liked, 
He loved the relationship. And I never will forget when JJ got to church with us several months down the road, the gospel was shared and JJ gave his life to Christ. And it was only because of the kindness that was shown to him through relationship. Do we have the video? Okay, we'll watch the video. At a young age, my brother passed away and my family started going to the local church. We started realizing that there were some things going on that were not what we wanted to be a part of. We kind of fell out of church and that really is where I started going downhill and got into a long-term relationship and it was very abusive and I decided to finally get out of that after years and two weeks later I found out I was pregnant. I found myself in a situation where I felt like I had nowhere to go. I was scared, lonely, afraid. I had no idea how to be a mom. I had to learn how to be an adult overnight. Pregnancy is a time when you're supposed to be happy and joyful and welcome in a new life, but I couldn't do any of that because I was so stressed out about where I was going to live, where I was going to work, what I was going to do, how I was going to be able to pay for everything. I was working all the time. We were super busy one night. It was in December around Christmas, and I had three people come in. The women were just totally interested in the baby when he was due, you know, what his name was going to be, if I had everything I needed, how I decorated the nursery. So nice and so thoughtful. And I was just honestly happy to have a table that wasn't being judgmental. One of the ladies, she had an envelope and a kindness card. And she said, you know, we love you and Jesus loves you. And we just wanted to give this to you, open it. And it was a lot of money. And it allowed me to be able to take a full maternity leave and pay all of my bills during that time and really spend that time with Isaiah. I decided right then and there that if I ever wanted to go to church again, I would go to Church of the Highlands. I met Rayleigh at work. I felt like I could reach out to her if I needed anything. So I think it just, the conversation kind of evolved over months. She messaged me one day, can I go to church with you? Woke up at 6 a.m. Sunday morning, could not sleep. So I sent her a text and I said, I'm gonna meet you there. I was serving that morning and someone on the greeter team told me that Brandy was looking for me. And so I got really excited and I met her at the door and I walked her through those first few steps and um, found us a seat. My first impression of Highlands was amazing. The message was perfect for me and I knew I had finally found a place where I could feel at home and that it was gonna help change my life and bring the joy that I needed. When Brandy left that day, I felt like I was a part of something really big. It felt very humbling to be a part of a church who allowed me to be a piece in that. I ended up getting baptized last October. I joined my first small group with Rayleigh. Now I'm serving. When you do listen to God and you do bless someone, you don't know how many people that will affect. I think that I'm now able to leave a legacy because our lifestyle has completely changed. Isaiah and I would not be where we are today if we had never had those people from Highlands care about me, you know, and, and show me the kindness that they did, and if I'd never chosen to go. And I feel like I, I belong to something now. And it starts with kindness. Like, they don't know her. They didn't know her story. But they cared enough to ask her questions and not judge her and meet needs and provide for her needs. And eventually she comes to know Christ and get baptized and to walk with him. And it starts with kindness. And so for us, it's, it's 
two things. Remember that we are a lot like Mephibosheth. That when he was brought before David, he has nothing, can repay nothing, deserves nothing, yet David gives him everything. And that God does the same for us. That no matter what makes us feel unworthy, whatever our past is, that we are brought before the king of the world with nothing to offer him, and he gives us a new identity. He shows us the loving kindness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that as we process that kindness that was poured out on us, that we now have a chance to show in smaller ways that same kindness. Whether we're at a restaurant, whether we're with our coworkers, whether we're in our houses, with our neighbors, that we can show that kind of kindness. Because when we show that kindness... People want to know about where it came from because it's not normal. May we be great because we're kind. May this be our church. May this be our lives, that we are known for being great because we are selflessly, sacrificially, unabandonedly kind to anyone and everyone that crosses our path. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the loving kindness shown to us at the cross. Without the love and the sacrifice of your son, we would be lost. We would be useless. We would have nowhere to turn and nowhere to go. But thanks be to you who pursued us and came to us and said to us, you are mine, despite what you struggle with. You are mine, and we worship you now for that. God, we recognize that, and we are going to sing and remember how good and how loving you are to us. And God, I pray that as we sing and reflect on your loving kindness for us, that God, it would overflow into our life, into our interactions with the people that we cross paths with, our kids and our spouses, our neighbors and the people we work with, that we would be looking, we would be waiting for an opportunity to show the same kind of kindness to someone with need. And God, that our church, this, we would be known for kindness, that when we show kindness, that we show your kindness to us. And so God, I pray that big ways and in small ways, this week you would help us to see, to see, to know the need that's before us and for us to be bold and selfless as we pursue to show kindness. It's in your name we pray, amen.